0: Amen. Okay, so this morning um, I am going to be carrying on Phil's series on the Sermon of the Mount. And on my walk to church this morning, I come across the coronation wreck uh, in the morning to get to church. I was reminded uh, by the Lord of a particular verse, a verse that I really love, uh, but I think that I'm only just beginning to scratch the surface of. John 10 verse 10 says this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I think I've always mainly associated that verse with Jesus's promise that we should experience joy and love and hope and all those really positive highs in this life. But I just felt the Lord really struck me as I was walking to church this morning, but isn't life more than just the highs that we experience? We're going to have a look at some really challenging uh, verses today. And I just felt the Holy Spirit prompting me as I, as I walked this morning that, that, that really that life in all its fullness has many highs, but it has many lows as well. It's wide in all its extremities. And I just felt challenged that can we really experience true joy until we have experienced pain? And can we know hope before we have really experienced despair? And can we learn to embrace life and all it has to offer us if we haven't had to endure loss? You see, life in all its fullness is deep and high and wide. And today's passage shows us some of those depths. I entitled this uh, talk today, The Road to Life. Just the, the, the Beatitudes is what we're looking at today. Phil looked at the first half a couple of weeks back, and we're looking at the second half today. And they're like a blueprint for life, is what I want to suggest this morning. And I just felt the Lord just peeling back the layers of those verses these last couple of weeks. So let's dig into those words this morning to see what kind of life Jesus says we are going to experience in pursuit of him. So two weeks ago when Phil spoke on the first part of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, uh, he talked about how these first four verses are like an, they're like a process of preparation for the Christian life. They guide us in the steps necessary if we're going to be used by God. I'll just put them up on the screen. Here we go. The first one, if you'll remember, is blessed are the poor in spirit. Do we recognize that we are poor in spirit, that we need to be reconciled to God and that only through Jesus is that possible? If we think we are doing absolutely fine on our own, thank you very much, then God isn't going to be able to use us. The second was, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do we mourn over our sin? That was particularly what Phil was uh, focusing on. Do we recognize that there's sin in our lives? Jesus said, if we say that we have no sin in us, we deceive ourselves. So it's there. Before I became a Christian, I hadn't committed any crimes, got in any fights, taken any drugs. As far as I was concerned, I was good. I was a good person is what I thought. But when I allowed God in and he began to penetrate under the surface of my life, I realized that so many of the decisions in my life revolved around me. And that might not seem like the biggest sin, but then again, I was really struck preparing this that Adam and Eve, they didn't set in chain the fall of mankind by murdering anyone or selling drugs. They got there by saying, I want to call the shots. I want to be at the center of life. The third uh, beatitude, blessed are the meek. Are we willing to stop putting ourselves first and following our own agendas and instead begin to seek God's will for our lives in God's power? Again, this is the Adam and Eve question. Do we believe that we know what is right for our lives? Or do we recognize that our creator, our loving heavenly father, knows us better than we can ever know ourselves and has a far better plan for our lives than we can imagine? And the final verse that Phil spoke about was, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do we want to become more like Jesus, do we want to live a more righteous life? If we aren't hungry, we can't be filled. Last autumn, I helped on an alpha course at Felton Young Offenders, and a man broke down in tears when he was talking to an ex offender who came in to share his testimony. The young man desperately wanted to believe that a different life was possible for his future. And so this man who shared his testimony said to him, Do you want To change, you can get there, but you will only succeed if you want to change. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If you do, then Jesus has promised that we will be filled. So, then, if these first four Beatitudes are about preparing us to be used by God, then the second four can be described as how God uses us. They show us the road that Jesus calls us to travel with him. It's worth pointing out that we don't want to stop focusing on the first four. We should be continually hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We should be continually mourning over our sin as God exposes it in us. And we need to be meek and decide each morning to put God first. So the final four Beatitudes say this. We're going to go through each of those one by one and just dig a little deeper into what Jesus is trying to teach us here. So blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of mercy. Uh, The definition I found in one book was actively compassionate and the word merciful is used uh, frequently of Jesus. I'm going to quite a few verses. If you've got a Bible with you, you can look these up. I'm afraid I haven't put them on the screen. The first is from Hebrews 2, verse 17. It says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And mercy is also a quality that God desires to see in us. In Luke 6, verses 35 to 36, the verse about loving your enemies, this is what uh, Jesus says. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked." Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So, when we look at these two verses, there are two things that mercy assumes. The first is that there is a need on the on the part of the one who receives the mercy, and the second is that the resources adequate to meet that need are on it on the part of him who showed it. So we need saving we have become separated from God by our sin. And Jesus had the resources to meet that need. He lived a pure and a sinless life. He could be the atoning sacrifice necessary to reunite us with God. The story of the Good Samaritan is a great example of mercy. The victim of a robbery needed help. And it was the Samaritan man who had the mercy to help him. He showed him mercy. There's no sense of duty or obligation. He didn't need to stop. In fact, two others had walked on by without helping him. But mercy goes further than any sense of duty. In the same way, we don't deserve our salvation, but Jesus in his mercy chose to make it possible for us by dying. The other thing to point out is that mercy isn't an option either. It's not a duty, but neither is it an option. Jesus says quite starkly that blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. James 2 verse 13 says for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And if we just think about that for a minute, that's, that's quite a scary thought, isn't it? It's quite sobering. I certainly don't want to be judged without any mercy um, because I know where I would end up if I was. Jesus is trying to teach us a different way of life, a life characterized by mercy. And I guess the questions I think to ask myself are, am I compassionate or impatient with those who are struggling with their faith? Am I merciful or condescending towards those outside the church. Jesus showed us mercy when we most needed it. We are called to do the same to those around us. And if you want to learn to show more mercy, then can I suggest that you go and spend some time with the poor? And by the poor, I just mean people who have a need, those who are elderly and alone, those who are sick, those who are battling with depression, prisoners, the homeless, and many, many more people groups besides. If you think that there are no poor people around you, then ask God to open your eyes and to look again. When we begin to see the world through God's eyes, we see the brokenhearted in every corner of our lives. The guy in the cubicle next to us at work who honestly contemplated jumping off the platform at the station this morning because he couldn't face another day trapped in the circle of stress at work and sleepless nights at home. Or the mum at the school gates battling postnatal depression and hasn't told a soul. Or the old lady in the queue ahead of us at the post office who's desperate for someone to talk to. Or the young man in prison who wants to believe that there's a better life out there but he just doesn't know how on earth he will escape the life of gangs and drugs he's become so embedded in. So spend time with the poor, hear their stories, and let God show you how to be merciful. People sometimes ask me whether I'm scared to go into the prison, and I can tell you I have learned more about mercy and compassion in that prison than I have anywhere else in life. How can I look at the helpless state of these young men with their whole lives ahead of them and not weep and cry out to God for them. How can I not be moved? How can I not sit there remembering the very day that God performed a miracle in my life by warming my selfish heart to accept him and pray for him to do the same in these men? When we spend time with the poor, our hearts are warmed and God can teach us how to be merciful. So the second then um, of these uh, final four Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In the Bible, the heart is often a picture of the center of our personality, the core of who we are. Now, Jesus's assessment of our natural hearts isn't a particularly positive one. Uh, In Matthew 15 Verse 19, he says this: For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Jesus is highlighting that our sinful behaviour starts with evil thoughts, which in turn come out of our hearts. And if purity of heart is a prerequisite to seeing God, that's the promise: those who are pure in heart will see God then how how are we going to get there? Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4 says this. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Purity of heart is not about conforming to rules. It's about what's inside of us. So if Jesus took such a dim view of the state of the human heart, then how can we become pure in heart? We want to see God, don't we? We want to be with him. Well, the great promise in 1 John verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, is that when Jesus returns, we shall be like him. When Jesus returns, we shall be like him. Like him, Jesus, who is pure in heart, who is holy and unblemished. The language of one John is one of expectation. We shall be like him. And John goes on to say, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So in other words, a Christian purifies himself now because pure is ultimately what he will be. His present efforts Are consistent with his future hope. This is a really complicated idea to get our heads around. We understand that we're not yet perfect. We still sin, we make mistakes, we don't always live a pure and a holy life. And yet we live in the hope that we will be like this one day when Jesus returns. And if we live in that way, we are deemed to be pure in heart as we trust in this future hope in the light of all that Jesus has done for us. The key here is to live in the light of that future hope. We can't make ourselves completely pure in our own efforts. Our hearts, as Jesus plainly said in the quote I read a few minutes ago, are tainted by sin. They produce sinful thoughts and sinful actions. And yet as we seek with all our hearts to follow Jesus, to live as he taught, to allow ourselves to be changed... As the Holy Spirit works in us, then we live as though we are pure in heart. And by the grace of God, we begin to see him as we live in this way. We become pure. We should be becoming more and more pure as we go through this life. I see it as a picture of giving ourselves more and more to Jesus. As we choose Jesus each day over the many other competing influences and demands in our life as we allow the gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and we accept his forgiveness and seek to live differently then we find ourselves seeing God more don't we when we're obedient to God when we are obedient to the work that his Holy Spirit is trying to do in us somehow we feel closer to God we sense his leading, his fellowship. We feel him close. So next, are blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace speaks of harmony between people, between nations and communities. Peacemakers are different from those who are peaceful or who yearn for peace. You might say of someone that they are peaceful meaning that they are calm, even-tempered, and so on. But what Jesus is talking about here are peacemakers, are those who restore relationships. Jesus is the greatest peacemaker. Back during Advent, I spoke about one of the names Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be known by, the Prince of Peace. Jesus makes peace between God and man through the blood he shed on the cross for us. He removed our sin, which stood in the way of our relationship with God. And he brought us into a right relationship with God. He was bringing peace by restoring that relationship. So when Jesus appeared to his disciples shortly after his death and resurrection and greeted them with a traditional Jewish saying, peace be with you, he was bringing a truly new depth to its meaning. He had literally brought them peace with God. He had made a way for them to be reconciled to their heavenly father by taking away their sin, by dying for their sin, taking the punishment they deserved. And so the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is the greatest peacemaking message that we can share with anyone. The Christian who shares their faith is a peacemaker. Isaiah 52, verse 7, is a beautiful verse. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. If you want to be a peacemaker, then the greatest message you can share is the good news about Jesus. And we see that, don't we, as we share the gospel. We see that when we share the gospel with someone, when they come to Christ, it brings them peace. It brings them peace in their life like they have never known it before. If you're not sure what the good news is, it's very simple. God made it. We broke it. And Jesus can fix it. We broke. God made a relationship with us. We broke it. And Jesus can fix it. I don't know whether you've ever spoken to someone about your faith, whether you've ever spoken to someone about Jesus and shared in that precious moment. As their guard comes down, often tears begin to flow and you know that the Holy Spirit is stirring them, that they realize that they're encountering a different message from the ones they've heard before. People coming into church for the first time and hearing about Jesus often say they feel peaceful here. And that's not just because we try our best to create a nice friendly atmosphere. It's because they're experiencing the peace of God, the knowledge, perhaps not yet clear to them, that this is where they're going to find acceptance and peace and love and hope for the future. Peacemakers are blessed, Jesus tells us in this verse, because they will be called sons of God. In Jewish customs, son often bears the meaning partaker of the character of. So in other words, as we ourselves become peacemakers, leading others to Jesus, we take on the very character of God, reflecting his wonderful peacemaking character. Let's be peacemakers. And then the final of these Beatitudes is perhaps the hardest to read, And to accept, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We all know what persecution means. You're pursued, you're ridiculed, you're maybe even tortured. The key words in this verse are for righteousness sake. Jesus is talking here about people who are persecuted because they are determined to live as Jesus lived. And the blessing for living this way is to belong to the kingdom of God. Because we live in a sinful and fallen world, if we display genuine, transparent righteousness, Christ-likeness, then we will be rejected by many. don't know if you've ever thought about it like that. If you live like Jesus, people will persecute you. Jesus has said that in his word, and he knows what he's talking about. John 15, verses 18 to 20 say this. This is Jesus again. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And again in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if anyone tries to tell you that the Christian life is a nice, easy one where there is happiness and peace and joy all the time, then they haven't read the Gospels and they haven't taken in God's word because, in fact, Jesus makes pretty clear uh, promises here, doesn't he, that actually you will be persecuted if you follow me. And clearly Jesus is is wanting to drive something home here because in this final beatitude, he sees it's so important, he says it again. But this time more directly, not in the third person, um, he expands upon it. So this is Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus specifically this time includes insults and spoken malice under the umbrella of persecution. So in this country, uh, we generally don't face physical persecution for our faith, at least not yet. But there are plenty of insults spoken against Christians about many aspects of their faith. I have been insulted for believing in the miracle of a risen saviour. I've been called stupid for believing that God is the creator of the universe I've been called backwards for believing that marriage should be between one man and one woman. And I have been called old fashioned for holding fast to Jesus's teaching that sex should be kept for marriage. Sometimes the insults aren't even spoken out loud. Sometimes the most painful insults come in the form of rejection. The things you don't get invited to because you hold slightly different views to some people. It hurts. And sometimes I can be left feeling quite sorry for myself, which is why I need to remember the final part of what Jesus says. Just as a person must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom of God, that was the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, so he can expect to be persecuted because of righteousness if he enters the kingdom of God. The New Testament scholar Don Carson describes this as the most searching of all Beatitudes. He says this, which I find quite painful to read. If the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may fairly be asked where righteousness is displayed in his life. If their life does not conform to God's will, how then will they enter the kingdom of God? If the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may fairly be asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life. If their life does not conform to God's will, how then will they enter the kingdom of God? Those are quite stark words, aren't they? It's a challenge. It's a challenge. How much are we living this life for Jesus if no one's giving us any grief about it? Um, I I find that a personal challenge, and I imagine it it may be to, to you too. Jesus' final words on this matter are a command to rejoice and be glad amidst persecution because great is our reward in heaven. The focus here is on eternity. This life is only for a little while. Far from being a depressing prospect, if we suffer under persecution that's been prompted because we are trying to live like Jesus, then it is a triumphant sign that the kingdom of God is ours. That we will be there with, with Jesus. And I think that's the hardest thing to remember when we are going through persecution. When we're having a rough time because of our faith. Is that actually, this is a, this should be reminding us, hooray, rejoice, because people are treating, I must be doing something right for God if I'm getting all this grief from other people. So if you are currently experiencing ridicule or, any kind of persecution because of your faith, if people make fun of you when you come to church or because you hold to certain beliefs, then rejoice, be reassured, for yours is the kingdom of God. We've covered a lot of different ideas, and not all of them will have spoken to each of you. And what I want to to do is just to Suggest some applications for each of these Beatitudes that we have looked at. And if one speaks powerfully to you today, then focus on that and don't worry about reflecting on all of them. So the first one we looked at was blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. How are you doing at showing mercy? If there are situations you need to get right on with God because you haven't been very merciful, then just take the opportunity this morning to say you're sorry and to ask God to teach you to be more merciful. Could you reach out to the poor around you, whoever they may be? Allow God to teach you through the things you experience, the people that you meet in your life. Second then, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Are you becoming more like Jesus? What's the desire of your heart? Do you desire to live like Jesus? Why not commit to doing so afresh today? Just take, we're going to have some quiet uh, in a couple of minutes time. Just take that time to just recommit yourself to God, to desire to be pure in heart so that you can see God. I'm sure we all would like to draw nearer to God, to know His presence more in our life. Thirdly, then, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Have you shared the gospel with anyone lately? If you want to make a difference in this world, then the single greatest act you can perform is to share the good news with somebody else. Ask God to show you who needs to hear the gospel today. Whose heart is he already preparing to receive it? Ask him for the opportunity and the words to speak It can be an incredibly difficult thing to do. It can feel hard. Uh, It attacks our pride and all of these things. But I can assure you that there is nothing like the joy that you will experience if you share the gospel with someone and they respond. And I've been blessed to see many friends come to faith and it's a blessing to be a part of that work. It's a blessing that God wants us to be a part of this peacemaking. He's the one who has done it. All we need to do is is tell other people that. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you're experiencing persecution at the moment, then be comforted. Know that Jesus walked through that same valley, and because he came out the other side we have the hope of eternal life to come. We know that the kingdom of God is ours and nobody can take that away from us. And if your faith feels very safe at the moment, don't worry. Maybe today is just the time to re-examine how you're doing. If it feels very safe, then actually is God wanting to just nudge you on in some way? Are you hungering for righteousness? Do you desire to live as Jesus lived? Are you looking to him to ask him how he wants you to use your life. Perhaps he's got some opportunity waiting for you to serve him, to share the gospel, to make a difference for his kingdom. God is incredibly long-suffering. He is patient enough and gracious enough to wait for us when we go through really stagnant patches. But just don't stay there. If you sense God putting his finger on something this morning, then just get right on it and ask him to help you start moving forward again. We have all been there. But what the Christian life is about is about continually looking to move forward with God, about waking up each morning and say, Lord, I'm living this life for you. How do you want me to live it? I'm going to pray, and then um, we're just going to have a few moments of quiet just to reflect in your own heart about anything that God is putting his finger on this morning um, before we come to just a time of response, a recommitment of our lives to him. So let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you. For these words this morning, Lord, thank you for opening our eyes a little bit more this morning to to this message, Lord, in your gospel. Lord, right at the start there of the most uh, profound sermon you ever preached are these words, Lord. They're words which challenge our hearts, Lord, which are difficult to listen to. But Lord, we sense in them, Lord, that you're trying to teach us something about how we can truly experience the fullness of life. That, Lord, that that there is a mourning that is necessary over our sin. Lord, that there is a a hungering that's necessary if we're going to be filled with all the good things that you have to give us. Lord, that we need to step out of our comfort zone sometimes for you if we're going to see you, God. Lord, that if we're going through tough times for our faith, that's a reason to rejoice and not to retreat and to take two steps backwards. Lord, we just pray, come Holy Spirit, we pray, open our hearts this morning, speak into them. Lord, touch us with what you're wanting to speak to us this morning. And Lord, let us not go from this place without just spending some time getting right with you and allowing you to minister to us. just had a um, picture as we were praying um, of a horizon. And the horizon is both really beautiful and also feels very far away. And I just felt the Lord prompting that actually perhaps there are one or two of us here today who can sort of see the horizon, they can see the light of the Lord there, but it feels a long way away in territory that's unknown. But actually the promise of Jesus is that, If we walk towards him, he says, I am the light of the world, and in him is true life. Just feel that, if you sense that prompting of God just encouraging you to walk towards him, he will not let you down.